Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Uh, We are more than halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we hit a critical turning point. Like, from here on out, things will not be the same. The sort of narrative trajectory of our story changes. Now, before we get into today, though, I want to review a bit from last week because some of the interpretive tools that we uh, learned from last week will certainly apply this week. But before I do that, I want to do a, a warning in that uh, today's content is a, a bit mature. We, we're not going to get into like incredible detail on some things, but in order to make sense of what Jesus says, what he does, and where he does all this, we'll have to get into some historical information that is mature. So just a heads up for parents, if you've got kids in the room, the content will be in that direction. Okay, so last week, we read a story about a Canaanite woman who was healed, or her daughter was healed, by Jesus. And it goes like this, Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, what we talked about last week was that there's, um, there's a real easy kind of pattern that we fall into. It's, it's easy to fall into this pattern where we read something dealing with geography in the scripture and we just kind of go on. Like, oh yeah, Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon and now let's read about this miracle story. But inside of that geography, there is a whole story and that story helps interpret the story that you are about to read. So when we read that Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon and is, encounters a Canaanite woman, an average Jewish reader of this document in the first century, they would have a host of information and images flooding into their mind when they hear the word Tyre and Sidon. So where do we find out about Tyre and Sidon? We look to the Old Testament scriptures, 1 Kings 16, 29 through 31. It says this, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all those who were before him. And as if it had been light of a thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Okay, so this guy, Ahab, and it says that he's, he does evil in the sight of the Lord more than all of those who were before him. So were there, was there bad kings before Ahab? Yes, really bad guys. And this guy is more evil and is doing more wicked deeds than all of those guys. So it clues you into the kind of horrendous nature of this guy's sins, the stuff he's doing. And then it goes on and says, he marries the daughter of the king of Sidon. It's the region of Tyre and Sidon. He marries this daughter who is named Jezebel and her father's name is Ethbaal. Now let's break that word Ethbaal into two sections and you get Eth and then Baal. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, Baal might sound familiar, right? Or you might know it as Baal. Baal is a Canaanite deity, a false god that the people surrounding Israel would worship in Old Testament times. And oftentimes Israel was was tempted into worshiping alongside of their neighbors as well. Ethbaal means something like uh, living in the favor of Baal. So he has the false god's name embedded into his name. His daughter is named 
Jezebel, or likely Jezebel. And this one's a little harder to translate, but it means something like, um, where is our prince, or where is the ruler, or where is Baal? And it's a little bit confusing, because like, why would you name your kid, like, where is your God, type, type of thing. Um, but, and we, don't, we can't be certain, but it, it, it's possible that the phrase, where is our prince, is a phrase that was recited or chanted or repeated in a rite or ritual in order to call back Baal from the underworld. Baal is a fertility god, and so some people would say that the fertility gods would go into the underworld during the wintertime, and then they would need to get called back by some rite or ritual or some type of worship activity in the springtime. So you have a guy who's named Ethbaal, Baal's favor, and he decides to name his daughter something like a chant that calls back Baal from the underworld. And now Ahab, the king of Israel, has married into this family. And what happens? They are all committed to the worship of Baal, and Ahab does more evil than the kings before him. What else? 1 Kings 18, 3 through 4. It says, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Jezebel cuts off the prophets of the Lord. That's a way to say she's killing them. Jezebel is the evil queen who kills the people of God. Now at this point, the archetypical nature of Jezebel begins to emerge. So Jezebel is a historical figure. She's real. She was the queen at this time. But when other figures participate in the pattern of behavior that Jezebel set out, they are participating in the archetypical reality of the evil queen who hunts the people of God. And therefore, they likewise can be called Jezebel. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Revelation 2.20. Way at the end of the Bible. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So there's the concrete historical person of Jezebel, but then when someone else participates in the patterns of behavior that the historical, the historical Jezebel did, you likewise can call them a Jezebel. And that's what's happening in the book of Revelation. And scriptures do this all the time. For example, uh, Babylon is a historical city. But even after the historical city is destroyed, the scriptures still continue to talk about Babylon. In the book of Revelation, it's talking about down the road in the future, things about Babylon. Because Babylon was the historical city, but any system, government, or institution that participates in the behavioral patterns of the original Babylon is likewise Babylon. You follow that? So there's the historical reality, and then there's kind of the archetypical reality that subsequent characters, things, or places can participate in. So who comes from Tyre and Sidon? Those who are committed to Baal, the evil queen who kills the people of God, and the evil king who marries into that. And then one more, Ezekiel 28 says, now the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say this to the prince of Tyre. Say this to the guy who's in charge of Tyre and Sidon. Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. You are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. 
It's complicated and we don't have time to get into it today, but Ezekiel will go on and essentially parallel the behavior of the king of Tyre with Satan. They are both people who want to to sit in the place of God and they both practice wicked deeds. So the point of this, to make a long story short, is that in Ezekiel 28, the ruler of Tyre and Sidon is described in a Satan-like manner because he adopts the behavioral patterns of the Satan figure in scripture. So all of this to say, Tyre and Sidon is not just a normal place on the map. We just read, and then Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon. And we go, okay, this is another stop as he's roaming around. It's like, no. Jesus leaves, first off, the boundaries of Israel and goes to Gentile territory. And he goes to specific Gentile territory. The place of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, the place of archetypical evil, the house of Jezebel, where Ethbaal comes from, where the rulers are described in Satan-like terms. Similarly, in another, in another story, you might have um, the characters look out at a place, and if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the story, you just go, well, they're going to another location, but the characters in the story know like, no, over there is bad like really bad. So when an older mentor figure is preparing to take a young person that he's training to an evil place called the Moss Eisley spaceport, he'll say, like, you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And if you know the narrative, you go, man, nothing good's going to come out of there. And it makes you anticipate what's going to happen. So Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, the place of archetypical evil outside of the boundaries of Israel. He's confronted by a Gentile woman. The people in his day would see this woman as an unclean woman from an unclean land whose daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. And what does Jesus do? He provides. He heals her. So this isn't just another miracle story, right? It's not like Matthew is giving us, there's another time Jesus did this cool thing, then he did this cool thing. This is changing the narrative flow. This is revealing the heart and mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus will go outside of the boundaries of Israel and it will reach to and save even the Canaanites from Tyre and Sidon. All of that is bound up in the geography. Likewise, today, Jesus is going to go to a specific location, and it's going to change everything, not only for the gospel of Matthew, but for history. It will change everything. Nothing will be the same. Jesus goes to a specific location to plant a church, or better said, to plant the church. Matthew 16 Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So there's all this commotion about who Jesus is. Some are saying John the Baptist, some are saying Elijah, some are saying Jeremiah, maybe he's just one of the prophets. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, no, no, I understand this. I know, I know what people are saying, like on the streets, but who do you say that I am? And in asking his, the, disciple, the disciples the, this question, Matthew in his gospel account is in turn asking us the question as well. So in one sense, it's, hey, disciples, who do you say that, that I am? 
But when you read it, it's also saying, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He asked this question, and Simon says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And at this point, many people think this is where we get like the first Christian. This is the first truly Christian person. That might be confusing because you're, if you recall in Matthew's gospel, there's been other people who have had faith in Jesus, other people who have trusted him, other people to follow him. But Peter's confession seems to be in a, like a fundamentally different category. Like there's, there's different levels of understanding and revelation and Peter seems to, to broke through a, a to a different layer. And you see that in Jesus' response because Jesus doesn't say, oh, great, Peter, you now believe in me. Don't you know there's all these other people who are following and believing me? He says, no, this one's different. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has given this to you. In other words, it wasn't like the intellectual faculties of Peter and he solved the puzzle of who Jesus was. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He hears the response and he says, okay, stop. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven has done this. And then he says, I'm going to rename you now. Because originally Peter is Simon. And now he's called Peter. The Greek word for rock is Petra. And so if you put that in a, in a masculine form to make a guy's name out of it, Petra becomes Petros. Peter is Petros. And so Jesus says, great, Peter. You're now rock, Petros, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, tons of debate right here, tons of debate. It's been going on for a long time, very long time, because people are concerned with who exactly or what exactly is the rock that Christ builds his church upon. Like if Christ is going to lay the foundation for the church, it's of utmost importance, people would say, that we know exactly who the rock is. So some people say the rock that Jesus builds his church upon is Peter, Some people say it's the confession of Peter. When Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that confession is what the church is built upon. Some people would say, oh no, actually all throughout scripture, Jesus himself is the rock. So Jesus is saying, hey, Simon, you're now Petros, rock, but upon this rock, me, I'm gonna build my church. So all kinds of debate and all kinds of dialogue, but here's what's important for us today. In this event, and upon this confession, at this location, Jesus will lay the foundation for his church. The reason why that's the most important thing to focus on is because no matter what interpretation you get, that's still the focal point. The reason why it's so contested today is um, the Roman Catholic Church has a claim that Jesus makes Peter the rock that he's going to build his church upon, and that's where he's beginning to install him as the first pope. Now, that's a, my thing is, even if Jesus is referring to Peter as the rock in this scripture, you don't get a fully developed pope out of this passage. Like, you're gonna have to do a whole lot more work to find that here. So I don't, even if it is Peter, the point is just, Peter's the first one to confess Jesus, and this is the foundation that I begin 
to build my church upon. So the focus is here. This is the beginning place, the starting point, the laying of the foundation of the church. And he says, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. He goes on, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's sort of weird, that last line, then he charged no one, told the disciples, don't tell anyone. I mean, there's this big old climactic event. Jesus takes his disciples. They're there in Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? And you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, and I'm gonna give you a new name. This is great, you get it. Now don't tell anybody. I mean, that's, that's the pattern here. There will come a time when Jesus will say, shout this from the rooftops, but all things in right timing. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that important? Well, the literary context of Matthew tells us one reason why it's incredibly important. Previously, Jesus has told a certain group of individuals that they are locking people out from the kingdom. They're like closing the gates and not allowing people into God's kingdom. Do you remember who that statement was directed at? The Pharisees, the religious establishment, the elite. He's like, you guys are like gatekeepers who lock people out. And now the disciples are handed the keys to open the gates, to begin the church's message, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it ends with this. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. From here on out, Jesus fixes his gaze upon Jerusalem. For the most part, he's been roaming around Galilee, teaching and doing miracles. Every so often, he does maybe like a side mission, but the majority of it's in northern Galilee. And now, subsequent to the confession that Jesus is Christ, son of the living God, everything changes. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going there to die. I'm going there to suffer and to die. And everything changes from that point forward. Okay. Now we need to go back because I skipped some things. Uh, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. So remember, the location matters. If you're in real estate, you should be saying right now, location, location, location. Because when Jesus heals the Canaanite woman, more is going on there than just the healing of some random woman. And likewise, there's a lot more going on here. Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of Galilee. It's about 1,700 foot incline. And so it's out of the way. This is the northern boundary in Israel. So it's not as if Caesarea Philippi is just another stop on the journey. Like it's a massive detour. And this is where Jesus takes the disciples to pop the question. The ultimate question, who do you say that I am? And when you're gonna pop penultimate questions, Really important questions. The location is important. You see this with, say, like a a bride, a groom-to-be about to ask his bride-to-be for her hand in marriage. Like, the location matters. It's important. You better think that through. Right? I've seen some people turning over to their spouse. Like, the location matters. Fellas, if you didn't do that, grace and peace to you. But you don't just like, it's not like you're, you're in the drive-thru at McDonald's and you like, 
what you want from the dollar menu. By the way, can I have your hand in marriage? Like, you better think through this. And so Jesus, when he asked the question, the location is important. It's out of the way. Now, what's important about this location? Well, one, it's an ancient site where an ancient god, god named Baal was worshiped. So both by other people groups and also Israel was tempted into worshiping Baal in this region. So for generations, people practiced false worship and idolatry and did horrific, horrendous things in the worship to this deity. Secondly, the name Caesarea Philippi. Let's slow down and see what that sounds like. Let's take the first word, Caesarea. Caesar. Caesar. Someone earlier might have said like, Caesar salad. It's like closer, warmer, a little bit before drop the salad. Yes, Caesar. Caesar. Because Herod, Philip, a descendant of Herod the Great, reconstructed some parts of this city and then he renamed it in honor of the emperor. And in Caesarea Philippi, there is a massive marble temple dedicated to the might and power of Rome in which people worshiped Caesar as a god. And then the Philippi part is because Philip rebuilt it. He's like, I'll throw my name in there for good measure. Caesarea Philippi. So you have this ancient site where Baal is worshiped. You have the worship of the Roman emperor there. Another important question, though, is what was it named before Caesarea Philippi? Because that's relatively a new name. And the reason why that's an important question is because what it was previously named is what it was always known as. Even in this, the time it was renamed, and then definitely after, within a short time, everyone refers to this location, this city, as one name, and it's Peneus. You, you ask then, well, what is Peneus? What's the root of that? And the root of Peneus is the word pan because this city was named after the Greek god Pan. It was the chief deity, and this is an image of the god Pan. He is depicted as a half goat, half man deity with horns. He is an evil, lust-filled god, a god of pasture lands, shepherds, herds. He would roam nature and haunt people. His sexual appetite was beyond description. He would pursue, seduce, and if rejected, assault men and women. In the ancient depictions of him, whether they be small statues or idols or paintings, um, he is often depicted performing grotesque sexual immorality, bestiality. Um, I was, I'm walking the line um, of I'm not going to show you all of this stuff, um, but I need you to know of how bad it actually was. This is Pan. This is the God who is chiefly worshipped in this location. And so you could do your own research and, and dig into just how vile this was, but just know that this deity is associated with the most perverse acts of sexual immorality. Even, by the way, to some of the ancient standards. Um, some of you might be familiar with the, the phrase pan flute or pan pipes. Um, that goes back to pan. The mythological tale of how those were invented was that pan was pursuing a nymph, a forest fairy, and she was denying his advances, so he pursued with the attempt to assault her. And in order to save herself, she was turned into sea reeds next to a river. 
And uh, she almost got away, but Pan noticed something different about the reeds, and so kind of in vengeance, he cuts them down, and then he cuts them in descending order to create his infamous Pan pipes. Pan is also the god of, of panic. Now, if you look at that face, it, even though you might have never seen this picture, it sort of looks familiar, right? Because some of our modern kind of artistic interpretations of what Satan might look like reflect this. Like this half-human horned demon god. So Pan is this evil, lust-filled, vile god who does horrific things. And the city of Caesarea Philippi was traditionally and afterwards called the Peneus, named to honor this God in that location. Now there's another layer to this. Um, the fertility gods in the ancient world were of utmost importance. Um, so if you're an ancient person, fertility means survival, both for humans, for animals, and the land. Like if the rain doesn't come, if the waters don't come, your crops don't grow, your family starves and dies. So utmost respect, honor, and adoration was given to these fertility gods. And some people um, observed certain patterns. So for instance, in the winter, the leaves fall off trees, the crops die, it gets cold, and everything just appears to be more deathly, if you will. And so there's this idea that in the winter, some of the fertility gods who are usually out blessing the land go into the underworld. And then once they go into the underworld, you need to call them back when they're ready, which is springtime, and ask them to bring rains to make the rivers flow again, to bless the crops in order for you and your family and your people to survive. So symbolically, the seasons begin to, to function as a way to depict a story of certain fertility gods going into the underworld in winter when things die back, and then them symbolically rising up in the spring to bless the land again. So, if you're an ancient person, it's very important that the fertility gods bless your land come springtime. So you would perform rites and rituals and worship activities to draw them back up from the underworld. This would be done in temples, or it could be done at sacred sites that had some type of symbolic relationship to fertility, either the underworld side or the springtime when things would be blessed again. So if there was a, a massive cave that descended deep into the ground, that might be a, an act, a, a, an, a, a piece of land where there would be worship activity in the ancient world because people would see this as like an entrance into the underworld. So if you're gonna call them back up from the underworld, you might as well go where they, where they can hear you type of thing. Also, likewise, if you found a spring of fresh flowing water, you would say, obviously this spring is bringing fertility to everything around it. So this land is blessed by some god or goddess. And so things like caves or springs could become sacred sites where the fertility gods would be worshiped. Here's a picture of a place that has both ends of the seasons represented symbolically. In the background, you see the great big cave and that cave has a massive descent into the ground. In fact, some, some ancient sources say um, we try to, to, to feed people rope to go down there and we've never found the end. That's how deep it goes. And then a giant spring, which represents the fertility of the gods blessing the land. 
Now, in this picture, that water doesn't come out of the mouth of the cave, and that's because an earthquake happened roughly 100 years ago. But for pretty much, from history standpoint, at this location, there's this great big cave as an entrance to the underworld, and then this spring of water coming up out of it. Now, this is a closer look at the cave, and do you want to guess the location of this sacred site with an entrance into the underworld with a spring of fertility coming out of it? Caesarea Philippi. And do you want to guess the primary deity that was worshipped in this cave? Pan. This is Caesarea Philippi. And for countless years and generations, people would go into this cave and call out Pan. Now, I told you the type of figure Pan is, right? He is an evil, vile, grotesque, lust-filled God. You can begin to imagine the type of rites and rituals and sacrifices and worship activity that would take place in that cave of honor, in honor of Pan. So I won't get into the details, but we are talking some of the worst stuff imaginable takes place there in honor of Pan. If that wasn't enough, right next to the cave and along the rest of the rock, which is this mountainside, there are little holes, these niches that you could see. Maybe you could see it a little bit better in this picture. What people would do is they would place idols of different gods and deities all along this rock in these little holes so that they could be honored and worshiped. So think about this an ancient site of Baal worship. Temples dedicated to Caesar. A cave officially titled Pan's Grotto where Pan was worshipped and called out. And then places for all the other gods to be worshipped. If you were to kind of get an ancient depiction of it, it would look something like this. A giant rock mountain side, Pan's Grotto, cult activity at the sacred site. On the far left, a massive marble temple dedicated to Caesar. To the right of it, another court dedicated to Pan. To the right of that, a temple dedicated to Zeus. To the right of that, even more courts that are dedicated to different gods and all filling the backside are these holes in the wall where there's shrines dedicated to other deities. Now, why do I tell you all of this? because this is the backdrop to our story. This is where Jesus takes his disciples to pop the question. When he confronts his disciples and say, who do you say that I am? This is in the background. So you have to picture that. You picture Pan's Grotto, an ancient site of Baal worship, temples dedicated to the might and power of Rome where Caesar is worshiped as a god, a temple dedicated to Zeus, a giant wall filled with countless other deities. That is the backdrop to the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter says, you're you're the Christ, you're Mashiach, you're our Messiah, you're our long-awaited hope, you are our only hope. And more so than that, you are the son of the living God. 
Just as have you, you have the imagery of the underworld and death, counter that with, you're the son of the living God, the God who gives life. And Jesus says, great, you get it. Now we begin our march to Jerusalem. And here I lay the foundation for the church. And you need to understand that this foundation will be strong. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This brings us to another important issue. The gates of hell. It's confusing here. The phrase gates of hell. Part of the confusion lies with one word that can be translated in two ways. In the Greek, it's the gates of Hades. You might ask, well, what's the, what's the English word for the Greek word Hades? It's Hades. Same word. And so it's, it's the, the place of the dead, or an idiomatic way to say it would be it's the powers of death. And so there's debate here, like what precisely does Jesus mean? Is Jesus saying the powers of death will not prevail against the church? Or does he mean conceptually something like the gates of hell? And if that's the case, Jesus is referring not necessarily to the powers of death, but the satanic assault or the demonic forces at war against the church. So in one sense, you could say, Jesus is saying the powers of death won't prevail. And in another sense, you could say, no, no, he's saying it's the demonic forces, the satanic assault won't prevail. And people debate these things, but it's, in my mind, it's actually a little bit more simple than what people make it to be because the word is Hades in Greek. Jesus chose the word Hades. He's using the phrase, the place of death or the powers of death. But here's the thing. Biblically, the powers of death are not separated from satanic assault or demonic forces. Death and Satan and sin are intricately bound up together. You don't have them like, you can't separate the knot. They go together. So in my mind, Jesus is saying it's not this or that. He's talking about the whole thing. The powers of death, the satanic assault against the church, all of that will not prevail against the church. There's another layer to this. When we picture this, if we're honest with ourselves, and this is how I did it when I was, when I was younger, we picture like, hell being super strong and powerful and the demonic forces and the powers of death. That's the strong thing. And they're going to charge the church and thank God he promised us the church, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. And so as long as we be faithful and stand strong, our defensive strategies will hold. That's not the way gates work in the ancient world. So a city gate or the city walls was the place that kept the people inside safe. So let's say you're a farmer and you're out in pasture land and you hear the trumpet blast which says the armies are coming to invade our city. You don't hang out in your farmland. You go up typically a mountain because cities were often built on mountains and get into the city walls by the city gate and there you would have safety. The city walls are what protect the people on the inside. So what does that mean for our image in the words of Jesus? It's not as if the forces of death are charging the church and Jesus saying, stay strong and be faithful and the the church will last and the gates of hell will prevail. No, in that image, hell is on the offense and church is on the defense. But the image Christ gives us is saying the church is not on the defensive end. They're playing offense and they are marching towards the gates of death and those gates will not stand. The church isn't on defense, it's on offense and they're marching straight towards 
the gates and walls of death and hell. And Jesus says, those walls ain't gonna hold. The gate will not prevail. The church will get through. Do you see how that's a different image, right? That's a much more powerful image. And this is the story of the church, by the way. This is our history. Think about this. Jesus says, I'm gonna lay, I'm gonna put something in motion. I'm gonna start a church. And the church is going to march towards the gates of death itself, and those gates won't hold. What has the church been doing for 2,000 years? It's been growing and getting stronger. Now, oftentimes you don't feel like it, and you go, oh, you think things are bad, but that's, that's not the big picture historically. Think about this. Jesus Christ went to Caesarea Philippi. He had 12 disciples with him, and he had a few other followers. And he says, we're gonna start something. And what begins here is the most powerful, unstoppable force the earth has ever seen. It will march, and it will keep marching. It will march to the gates of hell and death itself, and those gates will crumble. And for 2,000 years, the church has grown and become stronger and stronger. And we went from 12 people to countless millions upon millions of people who swear allegiance to Jesus as a king. From a historical perspective, this is beyond remarkable. Jesus says, the gates of death shall not prevail, and they don't. The church has been persecuted in every single generation. On every continent, the church has been persecuted. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was multiple persecutions, from Nero to Domitian, and you go on in history, and you see persecution after persecution. In modern times, today, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians facing torture, imprisonment, and death on a daily basis, but the gates of hell do not prevail. History is filled with corrupt dictators and tyrants unleashing hell upon confessing Christians. History is filled with corrupt governments banning Bibles, banning the proclamation of the gospel, and evil leaders doing everything they can to stop the onward march of the church, and every single time they fail. They might have small victories here and there, but empire after empire falls and crumbles, leader after leader falls and dies and turns to history pages and Christ's church marches on. It is the most powerful, unstoppable force ever instituted on God's good green earth. And 2,000 years ago, the carpenter's son, a poor penniless street preacher who spent the majority of his entire life roaming northern Galilee, made a claim, a claim that if you were a betting man, you'd be foolish to believe. He marches into Caesarea Philippi with this small group of followers and says, I'm going to set something in motion that will change everything. Everything changes from this point forward. History will change. Empires will change. Countries will change. The entire trajectory of history will change. Millions of lives will change because I'm setting something in motion that will be unstoppable. Now, from a historical perspective, again, this is the carpenter's son. He's a poor, penniless street preacher. He was born to peasants. But the carpenter's son is also the son of God. And what has history shown us? The unthinkable has happened. A first century Jew from Nazareth made the claim. And even more than that, 
After this, he would march to Jerusalem, and what would happen? He would die the slave's death. He would be killed in the most horrific manner, nailed to a Roman cross. And you're gonna say, that poor penniless street preacher born to peasants who was crucified and died the slave's death, that man is gonna change the world. World map. I've taken the time to put a giant red circle around the entire country of Israel. You see it? It's, it's, I circled the whole thing. The whole entire country is circled. It's right there. The entire country I circled. Okay. A first century Jewish man who died the slave's death on a Roman cross made the claim 2,000 years ago that his church would march against all the combined forces of demonic evil, all false religion, ideology, and philosophy, and his message would spread so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would swear allegiance to him. What's taken place? What do we observe today? Right now, in this church service, you join countless millions upon millions of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who swear allegiance to this king. And whether you like it or not, history tells a story that the son of the carpenter, without ever using sword or weapon, has conquered more hearts than any other earthly leader. And right now, at this moment, there are more men and women who will willfully lay down their life to serve their king than all earthly leaders combined. Now, whether you like it or not, you have to deal with the historical claim of the man from Nazareth at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? With the backdrop of Zeus and Caesar and Pan and the host of other deities, Jesus says, here, I'm gonna lay a foundation. I'm gonna build my church right here. He walks 25 miles out of the way to take his disciples here to ask the question. And 2,000 years later, we're still here. Where's Zeus? Where's Pan? We study about them in history books. Millions swear allegiance to the Son of the living God. Now, what's the practical sort of application of that for us today? It means Christians ought to be courageous and brave and bold. And that's very difficult, right? Sometimes, because the advent of certain technology has made everything filled with news, and what gets clicks is bad news. And so you just see bad stuff all of the time, and it's easy to give into anxiety and fear and despair. I mean, there's wars and rumors of wars. We have fear about the economy. We look around at look, look and look at the moral decadence that's in our culture, and we see people calling evil good and good evil, and you go, what is going on? This is nothing new. Where did Christ build his church? What's the backdrop? The church isn't on the defense. It's on the offense. So as a Christian, you don't flinch, you don't falter, you take heart. For Christ says there will be troubles, but he has conquered the world. He's overcome it. And he's given the church the, the marching orders. Proclaim the gospel to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Spread it all around and watch what God's spirit does. Do you know who you belong to? You belong to Christ. Do you know what you are part of? The church. 
And I know sometimes we use that word lightly, oh, church. You belong to Christ and you're a part of his church, the most powerful, unstoppable force empowered by his Holy Spirit. There's nothing like the church. There is nothing. Who do you belong to? What are you a part of? And when you recognize that and you combine that with the promise of Jesus, the gates of hell shall not prevail, you stand boldly and confidently. You do not give in to fear or anxiety. You take courage. You follow the king and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, we take communion. And what we celebrate in communion um, is deeply embedded to the story we're hearing. What? Because how do we know that the gates of hell will not prevail? Well, because the gates of hell have been weakened. The support structures have been taken away. And how did that happen? From the inside. The gates of hell are damaged first and foremost from the inside. How? Because Christ himself is swallowed up into death by the powers of death. And he goes into the place of death itself. And he breaks down the doors from the inside and resurrects in a resurrected body and comes out in power and glory. The gates, the support structures have been broken from the inside because someone went there on our behalf, on your behalf, in order that the church might not falter or fail, but be able to obey and succeed in the marching orders. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He said, this is my body, it's given for you. And so we remember Christ facing death on our behalf and coming out on the other side. And today what you need to know is that the powers of death will not ultimately have control over you. You may die, yes, but just as Christ went down and came up, so what happened to our Messiah will happen to us. And for those in faith, you will go down one day but you will come up because of what was done on your behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup of the new covenant and it's become a tradition for us here to to reflect on Paul's words that says, as long as you drink this, you are proclaiming the death and resurrection until Jesus returns. And so we remember his death, but we also proclaim his resurrection. Why? Because it's in and through his death and resurrection that Jesus defeats death from the inside out and pays away for his church. And so, Father, as we close, we want to honor your son, Jesus. He is our Messiah, the Christ, the son of a living God. And through the power of his life, conquering death, we might have life. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us not to give in to fear and anxiety and stress. We are forever and always a good news people. May the good news of the work of your son ring loudly from our hearts to this broken world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.